Podcast Revolution Network presents The Way with Noah. everybody welcome to another edition of way for noah i you know y'all know me i get excited a lot i'm excited about everybody i talk to because every time everybody i talk to is dope and i'm always so thankful that they take the time to talk to moi i'm speaking with joshua mound who just wrote uh well actually not just wrote approximately two weeks ago i don't know if you guys caught this piece but if you haven't i'll the link is in the description definitely check it out i'm also retweeting it uh, resolving the Democrats' false choice, how the party can win both the missing Obama millions and the Obama to Trump voters. Josh, how are you doing this evening? Great. Thanks for having um, me. Thank you so much for doing this. Yo, when I read this piece, I was like, yes, finally, someone is getting down to the real deal about how we start making sense out of what happened in 2016 the, 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 the losses that have been happening right over the last several years and how we start getting back to something going into the midterms and in 2020. How did you come to this with this piece? Well, it's something I've been thinking a lot about, um, mainly because of the, you know, ongoing, never ending sort of Hillary Bernie <laughs> debates that hopefully at some point will get passed. But um, you know, we seem to be relitigating the 2016 primary forever. And one of the really sad parts about it, um, or frustrating parts about it, in my opinion, was that it, it kind of got read as this, um, false choice between either addressing sort of, you know, identity politics broadly construed or addressing class politics. And, Oftentimes, I think that that was kind of a cop out and the way it was framed, not only because I don't actually think that, you know, Hillary was that committed to a lot of racial justice issues or social justice issues based on her past, but because the idea that we can't try to do both things at the same time, I just think is is kind of absurd. And it's trying to force Democrats and people who want to, you know, broadly sort of support progressive policies to choose one or the other. And I thought this article was kind of hopefully, you know, calling people on that bluff a little bit by saying, well, if we're going to say that, you know, identity issues are important and class is important, but we can only choose one or the other. What if we actually try to, you know, put them together, trying to think of real people inter intersectionally and ask what those people would look like and what policies though, you know, those people would benefit from. And I think that kind of works you out of that false binary. I, I really appreciate the way you set that up, especially when you, with the way you laid out in terms of, you know, you have this, we got to flip the blue collar whites who went Obama to Trump. And then, you know, on, on the flip, flip side, it's, we have to have voters of color because voters of color, are the base and, and so I like the way you work through in this piece about how it's not either or, it's definitely both and, and we can get to it if we're focusing on the issues that actually matter to people. So we have this commitment to racial justice, to social justice, and we, we we're embracing economic populism because they actually go hand in hand. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things that really stuck with me that I, I had read, you know, following the election was this New York Times piece that I, I think I linked to in the article about, um, you know, basically working class black voters in Milwaukee who said, you know, even after Trump won, that they didn't regret not voting because, you know, they had sort of high hopes for Obama and, you know, partly I think they were motivated to turn out even in 2012 because of sort of a lot of the, you know, kind of racist attacks on Obama. But then feeling like, you know, my life on the ground didn't really improve as much as I wanted. And Hillary Clinton wasn't really saying anything that connected with me. And, you know, that kind of sense of alienation, I think, is something that if, if Democrats want to win, they have to take seriously and ask why voters, you know, and Americans who really 
are, you know, desperately in need of a lot of help in terms of policy don't feel like the party's going to actually address them and just think, you know, I'm going to stay home. And I think that means, you know, that you have to not just pay lip service to, you know, that we care about diversity and sort of a lot of code words that maybe don't actually want to talk about racial justice, just sort of want to gloss over it and actually say, well, when you look at polls, too, um, voters of color are particularly uh, black voters are a lot more economically populist and economically progressive than whites. And so it's not simply that we sort of do identity stuff, quote unquote, to appeal to voters of color and then we do economic populism to appeal to white working class voters. And I think that that sort of binary makes it seem like economic populism isn't a really important piece to attracting, you know, um, blue collar, you know, working class blacks, which is who I sort of focused on in the article. But also, you know, a lot of young millennials who, you know, got dumped into a terrible economy who are really open to a lot of progressive economic ideas. And so I think that, you know, there was a way that kind of the Clinton campaign, I think, sort of deflected the economic populism debate by focusing on identity as if it was something separate that couldn't be combined with economic progressivism. Right. So I, I, I think that one of the things I really appreciated, like in addition to what we just discussed, was when you note that working class is not just white. I was just having a conversation with folks recently. Uh, actually, just last night, I was downstate in more rural part of Georgia. And, uh, you know, we were talking about how rural isn't just white. And I think when we start having those really honest conversations, because there, there is this anxiety, right? We have to get back the white working class. We have to get back white voters. There's this anxiety as if, you know, people aren't paying attention to white voters. And that simply is not necessarily the case. We look at any election cycle, particularly, you know, um, in your piece, like the, the strategy seemed to be that, you know, the Hillary Clinton Democrats were able to go after, you know, the suburban soccer moms who would be so turned off from uh, uh, Trump and not really have to worry about, you know, the traditional voting block of, you know, black, Latino, marginalized communities because Trump was so awful. And, and that type of dichotomy in some instances, like I know here in Georgia, when I saw Hillary Clinton commercials during the general, they were, you know, Republicans who were voting for Clinton not just just regular commercials from her. And that actually hurt, I believe that actually hurts the energy for down ballots too with that type of strategy. I think what you're laying out here is not just how we win on these larger scales like presidential elections or congressional cycles, but what you're laying out, I really think helps with some of these states like mine, which are looking to maybe turn, you know, from red to blue or to purple, at least to, to reclaim back the state houses and all these other down ballot races that get overlooked um, in this proxy battle that we still find ourselves trying to get out from under from 2016. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, your first point on not conflating working class with white, I think is is really crucial. And it's something that, you know, in popular discussion, in the media, um, in politics, and even in some, you know, scholarly debates, even there, there's this weird conflation where, you know, everything gets coded as white if it's working class, which also I think really prevents thinking in kind of complex and important ways about, you know, how, you know, economic issues and sort of identity issues. And I'm using that term, even though I, th I think that the, you know, identity politics broad category that kind of became really prevalent in 2016 isn't the best way to talk about it. But, you know, just just using the, the common terminology um, that, you know, those things are separate. And that's partly because, as you said, you know, when we talk about working class politics and everyone immediately thinks that we're talking about, you know, white working class politics, you get into this kind of intractable debate about, well, if we try to appeal to the white working class, you know, how do we know that they're actually going to respond to economic populism is sort of, you know, racism going to Trump economic populism. And then it becomes this, you know, zero sum conversation really quickly. And, and that's, you know, mainly what I was trying to get away from in saying, well, let's think about, you know, the black working class, as I talked about in this article. And I had a longer uh, article in Jacobin, like, several months ago, right, sort of laid out this long history that you mentioned of kind of centrist Democrats 
focusing on upscale whites. And I think the whole kind of, you know, Clinton, New Democrat, um, kind of neoliberal, you know, centrist model really was mainly about appealing to upscale whites. And it was kind of about, you know, trading in a certain sense, um, you know, working class whites for more well-off whites. And sort of in the background of this whole conversation has been the assumption that, you know, we can take sort of voters of color for granted, or we can take like LGBT voters for granted, and we don't really have to be kind of ahead of the curve on those issues or pushing too hard on, you know, quote unquote, identity issues, because they don't have anywhere to go, right? It's the Republicans are are their alternative. So, you know, going all the way back to like DOMA and things like that, or the welfare reform in the 90s, we can sort of play to you know, homophobia or played racism, and we're not really going to get punished with, you know, uh, like other parts of our base because they have nowhere to turn. Their only option is Republicans. And for one, I don't know if that's going to work out forever. Obviously, you know, if you look at 2004, George W. Bush got 40% of Latinos, which seems like ancient history now. But, you know, I think it's it's dangerous for Democrats to take any group of voters that, you know, should be part of their base for granted, assuming that just how bad Republicans are is going to force them to come out and vote for you. Because we saw in 2016, you know, thinking back to those Milwaukee voters that the New York Times wrote about, there is an option to stay home, right? You don't have to go out and vote for someone that doesn't enthuse you or that, you know, you don't think is actually going to make your life better. And we can't just rely on, you know, Trump being aggressively bad or ex-Republican being aggressively bad to win elections. And I think that mindset, you know, allows Democrats to kind of stray from being progressive across the board and think, well, we can kind of dial back on sort of economic justice issues and hope that we can get some of those upscale suburban white voters, you know, and we won't lose any other part of our coalition in doing that when I think, you know, you do actually lose part of your coalition doing that. And it's not just that you lose some, you know, uh, working class whites who might respond to that, but you lose a lot of other working class voters who feel like, you know, now the Democrats aren't speaking to them on anything other than kind of, you know, a superficial we're not as bad as Republicans, you know, kind of level. Absolutely agree. And I think that you're right. Like, it's not even the gamble that, oh, we won't lose the base. But it's like, instead of just trying to maintain and pull off a few voters, we should be looking at expanding because the potential for expansion, you know, from various pieces and stuff that come out exists as well. Um, but like, I just wanted to read, read just, just, just the very end, the very end of your piece. It's like the white voters for whom racism trumps all are lost to Democrats. And that's absolutely true. And, and we're not going to be able, leftists, progressives, whatever, people are not going to be able to appeal to them because if that's their bottom line, that's the bottom line. Nothing you can do about it. So there's no sense morally or politically in the Democrats returning to sister soldier style of racial pandering to whites. But by combining racial and cultural progressivism with an economic platform that equals parts Bernie Sanders and Black Lives Matter, Democrats can turn out Obama voters who stayed home in 2016 and win back some Obama voters, uh, Obama to Trump voters. And then you switch to... Um, and then it's uh, while that type of economic populism might alienate some, there's certainly not all of the upscale whites that centrist Democrats have spent decades courting. The Clinton to Trump contest proved conclusively that Romney Democrats don't exist. And even if they do, pandering to them on economics will only further alienate working class Americans of all colors. And and I really appreciate that framing at the very end of your piece, because um, what it's historical, right, it takes us back over the last 20 something years of democratic politics and engaging, you know, trying to drive at the base. And we're seeing this play out as southern states try to dig themselves out of, you know, the red quandary that they've been in for so long. But but I, I appreciate this this pushing back on the Romney Democrats because we saw that strategy again down here in the South with with, with Hillary Clinton. We also saw it saw it in our Georgia six race here with John Ossoff and Karen Handel and him trying to run more centrist to the middle. Right, absolutely. We've seen it in so many different instances. And, and we're starting to see how candidates who are running on issues that matter to their districts and communities, you know, folks may have some issues with Connor Lamb, but like when people run on issues that matter to the people, they have a good chance of winning. And then when we put our support behind them, they actually do win. And, and so it's just it's mind boggling, I guess, to some to think that why the Democratic Party wouldn't do this 
but for being attached to, I don't know, the consultancy, you know, class or, or donors or whatever the case may be. But, but what you lay out here seems to be a really like how we, you know, kind of unite and bring people back into the fold. I was just thinking when you were talking about the Milwaukee voters, there was a study, I think September, 2017, um, by working America, looking at black working class voters in Ohio. And it was the same sentiment that they looked at the choices and neither, Neither choice seemed like they were going to make their lives better because they had been struggling, struggling economically and and nothing else had changed and nothing else seemed like it was going to change. So it didn't seem like their vote mattered. And we hear that so often from folks, particularly those in marginalized communities, especially younger voters. Everyone's putting a lot of emphasis on millennial voters now. But how do we reach the masses to let them know that, yes, you need to be engaged and involved? We have to give them something, like you said, to be engaged and involved and excited about. I agree completely. And yeah, that Working America study was great. And there are, you know, millennial focus groups, too, that I think it was Cornell Belcher did a, his his polling firm or, you know, did a couple of reports on that where it was talking to sort of, you know, millennial voters who expressed a lot of the same things as, you know, those people in Ohio and people in Milwaukee that just they weren't super enthused in 2016. And I think that narrative of, you know, you have to vote or else Trump will get elected I mean, it's kind of a negative message. It doesn't always work. And when you kind of make it seem like your your win is inevitable, people are sort of doubly, you know, discouraged from turning out. And the larger point about growing the base, I think, is exactly right. You know, when you kind of chase someone like upscale whites that are pretty moderate across the board and, you know, they, they might be more progressive, nominally speaking, on racial issues or issues of sexuality than um, uh, blue collar whites, you know, according to kind of superficial polling. When you look at, you know, what policies you're willing to support to kind of redress some of these uh, inequalities, they're not necessarily actually more progressive. Um, and, you know, so you have to kind of moderate your positions if you're Democrats continually to try to win over those voters. And then you just start shedding parts of your base. And I think there's a certain point in a lot of people's lives politically where if you become so disenchanted, you're not going to turn out voting for the rest of your life. And I think with the millennials right now, Democrats have to think, you know, how do we convince these voters that we care about them, that we're going to actually go to the mat? for sort of progressive policies that are going to help them and turn them into kind of lifelong voters rather than hope that they won't leave because, you know, Trump is so bad and just sort of, you know, cross your fingers on that. Cause that's not, that's not a good strategy. That's how, you know, I think Democrats have kind of shrunk their base over time by just letting people get discouraged and feel like it's not worth, you know, being involved in politics because no one cares about them. Right, right. And I mean, I think that's a really good point about, you know, giving something, giving people something to be invested in, to be lifelong voters, instead of just using a, whatever gimmick or cheap trick, and maybe you'll get a few more people out this one time, but then you got to start the cycle all over again. And we, we, we continue to see that happen, um, even in this age of, of resistance. It's like, okay, now what? You know, there's a lot of talk about getting people to vote, even with the march, uh, uh, the park marchland. The Parkland March, you know, the March for Our Lives recently, which has been great and wonderful to see the youngs, the kids out there and doing their thing. But at the same time, like we, we need to we, it has to be more than just come on, go and vote these people out. We need to be voting people in who are actually going to move the needle because telling us, sorry, that's impossible. We can't do that uh, isn't really going to work and it's not going to, you know, help people become enthusiastic and engaged in the process. So um, definitely appreciate, you know, this piece, your perspective um, on this. Any final thoughts before we, we, we close out? No, I mean, I, I, I appreciate you having me on. And I think, you know, I am trying to be optimistic that I hope kind of Democrats are learning. You've seen some, you know, formerly uh, centrist Democrats like Gillibrand kind of embracing more progressive stuff. And I think what it's going to take is not just more Democrats kind of supporting things, you know, uh, publicly, but also when Democrats take power again, that they actually start 
you know, passing stuff like Medicare for all to really prove to people that it's not just talk and it's going to be action. And I think, you know, not to, I'm not naive, right? This is going to mean kind of bucking a lot of the big donors that have, you know, dominated the party for such a long time. But I think at a certain point, as we've talked about, right, Democrats are going to have to make the decision, you know, which direction they want to go. And I hope, you know, more people kind of pushing for them to think about, you know, the working class kind of, you know, broadly construed, as we talked about, will, you know, maybe push them to, to do something, you know, more progressive and hopefully cement a lot of those voters long term. Definitely. Well, Josh, I one, I appreciate you for joining me. Two, thank you for this dope piece because this is going to, it has so many good nuggets of wisdom. I'm definitely going to go check for your other, the Jacobin piece that you mentioned that expounds a little bit more on, um, you know, that history you were talking about. So check for both of those links in the description, everybody. And this is uh, another edition of Live with Noah. So thank you so much, Josh. Appreciate you. Thank you. Morning. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm good, Anora. Thanks for having me on. Um, I think actually this is the first time I've had you on. I know you had me on before, but I don't know that I've had you on. So this is kind of exciting. <laughs> yes, it is my first time. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was really, really like you do a lot of really good work and you really dig in there. And I just want to give you a special shout out because you covered someone who I think is an amazing candidate. And I'm really excited to see I mean, you cover a lot of amazing candidates. But but I was really excited when you wrote a piece on Lisa Ring when she wrote the time she first announced. Um, for those who are listening, Lisa Ring is running in the first congressional district here in Georgia. She's a progressive candidate, very active in organizing, you know, in rural communities. And she's one of the few candidates, I think, particularly here in the South, who get how to bridge that perceived divide between urban and rural voters. And so I'm really excited to see what she does. And I really think that you captured um, her essence very well in that that, that first piece you did. Um and, and you've done a lot of that, covering the unsung progressive heroes who are running for office. And recently, a couple of weeks ago, actually, you had a piece, the Democratic establishment tries to keep progressives off congressional ballots. Um, it was posted to the Real News website. There's one of the candidates you talk about is Anthony Clark. And for those who are not familiar, Anthony Clark is a um, brand new Congress candidate, Justice Dem, who's running in, um, he's running in the, I think it's the, which is 7th Congressional District in Illinois, I believe it is. Yes, yeah, 7th, yep. And so he's running against, you know, a long-term incumbent. And I actually have some followers of mine who live in the district who, who love their congressmen and are rather upset about this. So it's been really interesting, you know, seeing both sides of this play out. Um, but can you just tell me a little bit about kind of this piece and what unfolded and how it even came on your radar? Uh, well, you know... I've interviewed Anthony Clark a couple times before, so he, you know, knows, you know, who I am and, you know, he follows my stuff. So, and he, you know, he reached out to me and told me, you know, what was going on, that he had to spend, his campaign has spent, you know, over 12 grand fighting these frivolous lawsuits from Davis's campaign. And they were filed by one of his staffers and a former state senator who is really good friends with uh, Representative Dan. Danny Davis, and he uh, resigned in 2011 for corruption. Um, but they filed the, the lawsuit challenging his ballot signatures and that of the third candidate in the race. Um, and the third candidate in the race, you know, didn't have you know, resources to fight it, so he had to wind up dropping out. But uh, Clark fought it, and he won. He had more than enough signatures. He was like 500 over the threshold after, you know, the lawsuit, uh, you know, scrutinized every single signature and threw out as many as they could. Uh, and then after that, they filed frivolous claims that Clark and his mother, who obtained the signatures, did so fraudulently. Uh, and then that meant that Clark had to go back and get, um, you know, people to testify on his behalf. Uh, and they actually they ultimately won the case. But 
uh, what happened was his campaign was derailed for two months. Uh, He's he you know, wasting time and resources uh, you know, in court. Uh, and, and I think, you know, the primary is in March. So that's a, a huge deal to, to really paralyze his campaign. Uh, it prevented uh, a lot of local groups from getting uh, involved because, you know, he wasn't on the ballot yet. So there was really no reason uh, for them to. Uh, you know, put themselves on the line to, to campaign for him, you know, if he wasn't going to be on the ballot. So uh, you know, that was the most egregious example um, of that tactic that I saw. I cited a couple others, uh, you know, in that article, one in Arizona uh, with Brianna Westbrook, uh, who's an R Revolution back candidate. Um, and then uh, Lindy Lee, who ran against the Blue Dog in 2016 and wound up having to drop out. And then the Blue Dog lost uh, a district by 14 points that Hillary Clinton actually won. So, you know, and, and I've covered Chicago issues a, a lot because it's one of those districts where there is a progressive movement, um, but there's not really um, Republicans don't compete. Uh, so. I, even if Clark wasn't, you know, didn't have um, a competitive, uh, you know, place in the race, I think uh, with Davis, uh, you know, part of his campaign is making sure he doesn't build um, a movement so that when Davis does ultimately retire, he's been in Congress since 97, that he can pick his own uh, candidate to replace him, you know, in these, in these districts where you have you know, career congressmen that hold these districts, that's what they tend to do. And, you know, Clark could swoop in a couple elections from now and, you know, take the seat from whoever he wanted. Uh, so I think that's a, a big part of it as well, uh, you know, when people look at these races. And, and this happened all over Chicago. You have, uh, you know, Mary Newman challenging Dan Lipinski, one of the most conservative Democrats in Congress uh, in the Chicago era. Area. You have Brandon Johnson, who is uh, running for Cook County Commissioner. Um, he's backed by our revolution, and he's running against uh, Richard Boykin, who uh, you know has donated to Republicans, uh, and he has touted the idea of the United Nations putting troops into West Side Chicago to stop the violence. And then you have Rahm Emanuel, how you know terrible his administration is. So there's a lot of problems with Democrats, the establishment um, Democratic Party in Chicago and the Chicago area. Um, and, you know, it's it's a battle between them and progressives and trying to. Yeah, I mean, you're definitely, you know, hitting on something that we've been seeing happening across the board. I mean. For those people who first came kind of like aware of these political issues, um, you know, and in 2015, 2016 with Bernie Sanders race and saw for the first time how this plays out. But many people who have been doing this type of work at the local and state level have, have seen it happen in various iterations when you have someone who's backed by, you know, the, the party chosen candidate versus, you know, the other person. Um, how this plays out. And sometimes it's good. Sometimes the party chooses the person who's actually, you know, the good person for the race. But, 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 but this notion that we should have equal opportunity in races for people for the best person to emerge from the primary, sometimes it seems like that is outweighed by considerations, even amongst progressives in terms of winning, you know, November. It seems like sometimes that primaries are treated as just a mere formality. <laughs> Ever, you know, either the progressive wing or the Democrats have chosen as the person, and they're looking ahead towards, you know, uh, uh, winning the general election. But in some cases, as you just noted with the one example of the candidate who's chosen by the party and then lost a district Hillary had actually won, which we saw happen here in Georgia with the John Ossoff campaign, right? There was a hand selected candidate based on particular considerations. He wasn't necessarily the best or most qualified, or even he wasn't even someone who lived in the district. And even though here in Georgia, you don't technically have to live in the district to run for Congress, it actually, as I learned from a lot of folks recently, it actually really does matter to people if the person seeking to represent them actually lives among them in their community. Um, th that would seem like common sense for some folks. But what's really interesting, though, is that there is an insane amount of money that we poured into supporting people and propping folks up because that's the choice 
versus who is actually best to represent the people. And we, we often don't see that happening um, when we're looking at some of these campaigns. No, you don't. I mean, it's different depending on the district. I mean, with Anthony Clark, that's um, a, a Democrat democratic stronghold uh so progressives are going to find you know different obstacles than um you know seats that are up for grabs swing districts uh and then you have um districts like where uh, lisa ring is running for in georgia where the democrats have ignored it they didn't run a candidate at all in 2016 uh and so uh, you know, even though Lisa Rain is a great candidate, you know, I highly doubt she's going to get, uh, you know, support from the DCCC uh, or, you know, the DNC, despite their claims that they're going to, you know, compete in every community and have their 50 straight strategy. Um, you know, in, in my experience talking to people, uh, that is certainly not the case. Uh, you know, the Democratic Party has done well in getting opponents in a lot of these districts. I think there's only 12 congressional districts in the country that don't have uh, opponents to run against Republicans, which is still too much. Um, but there's a, a lot of communities, you know, a lot of red states that aren't getting um, support, are getting ignored by the party uh, for these districts that are in these races that can fundraise a lot of money, not just from within the district, but from, you know, uh, they have national appeals. Um, you know, Iron Stash is one uh, with Paul Ryan, um, you know, even though he has a primary challenger, uh, Kathy Myers uh, and, and Iron Stash, is, you know, is progressive. Kathy Myers is arguably a little more progressive uh, and, and has, you know, stronger ties within the district. Uh, you know, she serves on the school board, but I, the, those that's one of the you know dynamics of uh, you know these congressional races of the the electability of these candidates is really determined um, by the political consultant class uh, and you know big donors and whether there's uh, a connection there uh, and you know whether their campaigns can you know pull in that big money. Uh, in those big ad buys to you know get their name out nationally, which uh, you know obviously is in diametrically opposed to what progressives are all about—the grassroots movement, getting in touch with districts and the, and you know their their people. Uh, not to say that there aren't uh, a lot of great progressives who are running in con um, congressional races this year that have a great chance of um, beating the establishment Democratic Party and you know getting in office. I think we have a real opportunity to get a lot of good people in there. But uh, I think this is one of the obstacles that really uh, you know isn't discussed or is just, you know, conveniently ignored because it's easier just to go with, uh, you know, whatever the, the, the trend has started to, to favor already without having to, to push back against that. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. That's a, you bring up, you know, more good points, more points I agree with. I will say that, you know, with Kathy and Randy, I'm, I'm always torn because, you know, I like both. I've interviewed both. I actually got to meet Randy last summer. And then I'm biased because my ex is a is an iron worker, so I always have have a special place in my heart for for <laughs> the men who or the, the men and women who hang off the side of buildings and make America great. But and then my mom's a teacher, so then I love Kathy for that reason too. So it's so that is actually a really good example though, because they're both really good candidates. They're both good people. You know, people can have their issues wherever they have them. But what you noted in terms of the support that's in that race, right? And, and I think I was saying this to you before we started. One of the things that was said to me when I initially started asking different people I know questions is that it was this notion that he was ready to go and she was not. And what I find interesting with progressives, right, because here we are, we're in this very fragile state in terms of the DNC and its power, right, and, and its base. And then we have this rising progressive movement and these various organizations and entities that back candidates and to some extent, the same thing we complained about in terms of the DNC and the Dim powerhouse intervening in a primary process, and in that case, you know, referring to the 2016 process, we're now seeing with certain candidates who are maybe somewhat progressive, maybe not as progressive as their challengers, here in the, um, you know, now in midterm elections, right? You know, much as I love DFA and, and working families and other organizations, 
we're seeing, you know, these organizations basically create a system where you have a candidate that has been deemed the progressive choice, the candidate, this is it, this is who we're supporting, and everybody else needs to get on board too, because we have to beat the big bad Republican come November. And it does give the sense when you look at like that race as just an example between Randy and Kathy, it does give the sense that there has been, you know, someone who's been preordained. Now, whether or not there's other issues going on there is is a whole other conversation to have specifically, um, because I've heard tons of stuff on all sides. But I think that when we talk about progressives and building better politics, we can't fall into the same mistakes that we're seeing the DNC make that are that is leading to its downfall, where we are selecting one person as the person and not either providing good um responses or, or information as to why or how that process like I think people challenging the process or questioning how process and how candidates come to being endorsed is a good thing and it should happen and organizations should be transparent and clear with what they're doing and why they're doing and that's like that has been my one critique with that race with regards I know um I just saw the Well, uh, I don't have the article up yet, but I actually interviewed 15 progressives running for U.S. Senate races across the country because I, you know, I'm very interested. And I, there hasn't been any reporting on what, you know, how the progressive movement is impacting uh, U.S. Senate races. Uh, and, you know, I think one big reason for that is not only do these races cost a ton of money, but um, I think there's, you know, 34 Senate races, uh, you know, 26 of those are uh, Democrat incumbents. So I, I think the, the focus, obviously, uh, you know, Bernie has said uh, change starts from the bottom up. So, you know, we're really in the, the, the beginning stages of this uh, political revolution or the attempt to create one. Uh, but with, with the U.S. Senate races, um, you know, that that's uh, a big issue where in even in these open races, the, the candidate, whether they're progressive or not, are, are uh, you know, preordained. The Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee has formally endorsed and backed um, two candidates in races to um, challenge seats held by Republicans. Kristen Sinema, uh, she's a congresswoman in Arizona. She is running against the Justice Democrat uh, Senate candidate, Deidre Abood. Uh, Sinema is the chair of the Blue Dog Caucus. She's one of the most conservative congresswomen uh, in the Democratic Party, uh, but she is, you know, failing up in that regard. And if you look at the, the candidates, the Blue Dog Caucus are uh, endorsing and backing uh, on their website. It's very similar to the DCC and the DSCC, the candidates that they're endorsing and backing. Uh, and I think uh, you know, a big reason for that is those organizations are really run by the same people. Um, I, I know I'm going, kind of going on a, a tangent to, to, to discuss how the, the Democratic Party is trying to uh, manufacture their own candidates in these races, but that's uh, a big deal. You have the most conservative arm of the Democratic Party. Uh, and there's not many of them left compared to, you know, 10 years ago that the, the blue dogs have been failing. They've been losing elections, losing districts, but they're really determining uh, and to try, you know, shaping the blue wave uh, because they run the DCCC um, and they have, you know, so much influence in all these these elections. Um, and, and uh, you know, a lot of the candidates um, because they're running against, uh, you know, incumbent Democrats or, you know, in the Texas case, uh, Representative O'Rourke is already a congressman. Um, so in reporting uh, in the Democratic Party there, um, you know, he's treated as the presumptive nominee. And you know, I talked to Seema. Uh, she went to pay the fee to get on the ballot at the Texas Democratic Party headquarters, they told her you know, right off the bat, oh, are you sure you want to get in the race? There's two other people in the race. Why do you want to get in the race? And then she paid the fee in cash and they said, 
uh, if it was, they asked her if it was drug money. Like, and then, you know, she told me that every time she's contacted the Texas Democratic Party for information on, like, what she needs, the filings and whatever, they misled her, whether it was deliberately or just because they didn't know uh, what the hell they were doing. That's, type, you know, a type of the pushback where uh, the, the people in charge, if they don't want you running, uh, if they're, you know, they're not welcoming to... Uh, you know, other candidates who are challenging the, the their preordained one or the one they think that should be um, the nominee, you know, and, and that's frustrating. But and, and these stories aren't getting told nearly as much as they could. You know, that's happening uh, in a lot of races. And it, another example is I spoke to the only Democrat running in the U.S. Senate in Mississippi uh, he's a progressive, but he was told by the Democratic Party in Mississippi, uh, we're not going to help you because you can't raise $3 million, so there's no point in getting, you know, backing you. Uh, and, you know, obviously Mississippi is a Republican stronghold, but, you know, these attitudes uh, and the lack of resources in these places are what keeps uh, places like Mississippi uh, Republican strongholds because you don't bother – running candidates uh, in these places or competing in these places. Uh, and that's one of the places in the country that needs help the most, needs good representation, needs a strong progressive movement. And yet the narrative is still so prevalent that they need to get involved in these places in order to get these candidates to run. Well, agreed. I mean, also part of the issue continues to be still we have local parties and we complain about the DNC and what's happening on the national level, but we have these local parties that have been allowed to be unchecked and ruled as private victims for a long time. And folks may have seen the piece that I just recently did um, about uh, organizer and campaign operative, my friend Joe Trainer here in Georgia. Uh, he's actually, he has a candidate with the 12th congressional district here. Um, and that's like the Augusta, Statesboro, Savannah. No, no, Savannah would be Lisa's district. But yeah. Augusta and Statesboro, and and part of that issue has been you have a you have a local committee that has basically operated as the local folks have seen fit without any regard to the bylaws. And there are many instances of this happening all over the place, right? And um, and I know, you know, folks that follow the DNC lawsuit, fraud lawsuit and stuff, and I really think that if there is anyone who would have, you know, any type of standing or make any headway, you know, in terms of a legal challenge, would actually be people who are actual committee members. And in this case, Joe, Joe is one. Um, and they didn't follow their bylaws. They censured him and they banned him from all party activities for seven years. Now, again, mind you, he's running a campaign and it is said that many of the people on the committee support the um, the, the other candidate running. Um, so it's a lot of entrenched machine politics happening here. But it's 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 by all accounts they are in violation of their own bylaws. They're not following their bylaws, and they're actually trying to unseat someone who was properly voted and put it on a committee who's not up for re-election. Is not in the clear violation of bylaws. So, so it's really interesting looking at the way in which the mechanics and that entrenched thinking is hold, people are holding on to these little minor seats of power and how that plays into whether or not we are able to get, you know, fair elections and primaries. There's so much focus on voter integrity, voter suppression, election integrity. We're talking about general elections and we're talking about, you know, Republicans doing things, right? But there's very little attention put on the ways in which Democrats themselves suppress the vote, um, feed in, uh, uh, impede interaction and involvement in, in local politics. And some will say, what's the point of them enter? This is why you need to build your own. I can't speak for other you know, states. I, I really get excited seeing the work that, that um, folks are doing, Andy Green and others are doing with you know, Baltimore, Maryland Greens, for example. But in places like here, where there's such a huge threshold, you know, it makes it very difficult for, for third parties to, to do the work. And so, yes, people do need to build those spaces and, and continue to fight those battles. But at the same time, you know, the Democratic Party for some of these smaller races, it really is what, you know, a smaller candidate with little funds and little resources, that really is their option. Um, so 
you know, during the election and have a party and have a group, which in this case is the most I mean, you know, I, I agree, uh, you know, to cite another example that happened just this past week, but, uh, you know, a, a different outcome um, in St. Louis, um, there was a special election to replace a, a Democrat in the seat. And um, in St. Louis, I guess there was special elections. There are no primaries. So how the Democratic candidate is selected is the um there's a committee man and a committee woman for every ward in the city. And those two are supposed to uh, select the nominee to run in that, you know, council, city council district. Um, but both the committee man and committee woman, um, they, you know, nominated themselves. So that left it up to all the committee men and committee women in the St. Louis Democratic Party to vote for themselves on who would be the nominee. And they voted for the guy, Paul Feller. Um, and so the woman, Annie Rice, was, well, like, yo, you know what, I'm going to still run because I think people uh, want a progressive. They want me to be in that position. So she got enough ballot signatures. Uh, she ran for the seat and she won. She won as an independent. But what the St. Louis Democratic Party is doing now is they proposed a set of amendments that would punish her supporters. Um, the amendments would... Uh, censor and expel any um, supporters in the Democratic Party who support any um, candidate who isn't backed by the Democratic Party. So any independent uh, candidate. So any you know other committee men and committee women who supported her campaign, um, you know they could be expelled from their seats. Um, so it's really a, a backlash from that establishment Democratic Party is how they're trying to, you know, change the rules, manipulate the rules to uh, ensure that they can have, um, you know, final and full say on, you know, the elections within that city. And that, you know, that city, the Republicans don't compete. So it's really uh, up to Democrats and it's a battle between progressives in that city and establishment Democrats on uh, who's going to win and what election uh, and what seat. Yeah, like, that. what's happening in St. Louis is also really wild because you have, you have, this comes on the heels of, you know, you have Cory Bush running against um, Congressman Lacey Clay in the 1st Congressional District in Missouri. Uh, I know Cory was a supporter of Annie. How I even know about Annie is from Cory and Representative Bruce Franks, um, they, their own, like, Facebook pages and timelines, right? And have come under, you know, uh, attack previously for, for supporting um, Annie and her race um, before, I think, I don't, I mean, can't remember at what point, but 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 for not falling in line. And, and, and it was interesting is we saw how, you know, Democrats in that area acted in terms of just even the proceedings that led to Bruce even being in his seat now, right? For folks who may not be aware or just don't remember this group of pressure, you know, there were issues with absentee ballots. Bruce had to mount a legal challenge um, to, to basically overturn the original vote to have a new vote because it was determined that the there were absentee ballots that were not in accordance with state law. And so those were forced out and they tossed out and they had a new vote. There was a very entrenched, you know, uh, political machine, democratic machine in that area. And that actually not only undid the vote in Bruce's case, but it also did not vote in another city council, uh, no, a city alderman seat as well. So there is a lot of machinations and stuff we see in, at the local level with the Democratic Party, and, 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 and there are a few successes out there which should help empower us, those of us who are engaged in this type of work, looking at seeing, like, okay, what are the issues? How do I, you know, figure this out? And if I am a dementia type of person, how can I now challenge what is happening? Again, I think in, in, in these different examples, the, the ones where we've seen some minor successes, I think part of what what has given people the standing to do well versus just being an average voter is like that these people actually you know, registered as a part of the committee or had been or something to that extent. So I think it gives them a greater standing in terms of rights, being able to argue points because otherwise, Courts have been pretty reluctant to get involved when it's a voter 
um, you know, raising an issue with the party itself because that's when they get into all that part of the club nonsense um, that, that that we keep seeing happen. No, I I agree, and it, it it's difficult for you know progressives because you know different cities, different states have completely different rules and ways of doing things in elections, and you know in some places it, you know it's possible to run it's easy to run as an independent um and run a good campaign and others uh it's almost impossible what you know um you know i know here in florida they they have closed primaries so it it really shuts out independence out in democratic primaries but uh i think it's really difficult even though independents are growing in florida uh for an independent to really run um an actual, you know, substantive campaign. And I, I haven't seen one in Florida be able to do this. Um, and, and that could be part of the demographics and the, the culture, but, um, you know, compared to places like Vermont or Maine or, you know, Alaska, where, you know, independents you know, run and have won, you know, statewide seats. Um, so I think there's a learning curve for progressives to really figure out, uh, and learn about the rules. And, um, you know, I, I've spoken with, in, you know, in California, another example, the California Progressive Caucus Chair, Karen Bernal, uh, you know, in conversation I've had with her, uh, you know, that was one of the you know, issues she had is that the Democratic Party in California has all these, like, kind of incoherent rules, a lot of, like, um, rules that, you know, have real no and no purpose other than to confuse people getting into the party and to you know protect incumbents you know a story i did a couple weeks ago um democrats uh democrat incumbents in that state automatically get the party endorsement unless uh, a primary challenger uh gets enough eligible delegates to sign a petition to challenge that uh, and you had Nancy Pelosi's primary challenger and Anthony Rendon's primary challenger um, actually get enough signatures. And then uh, the party uh, pulled out some, you know, nonsense to, you know, reject their petitions. And then uh, they've scheduled their appeals until, you know, after the primaries over rendering them moot. So, uh, and, and obviously California is a huge battleground between progressives and Democrats because, again, uh, it's a Democratic Party stronghold. There's a, a lot of progressives there. Uh, and, you know, from the Democratic primary in 2016 to Kimberly Ellis and Eric Bauman's race to a lot of the races now, uh, you're, you're seeing the, the party there who's very rich, uh, you know, very big, uh, very powerful, uh, being able to um, manipulate the rules uh, in however ways they see fit. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, 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 that's interesting, though, about like how procedurally things are done like that. Um, as you just point out in the California, in terms of the point, like, sure, yeah, okay, so you on the surface have this right, but we're going to make it so that it's so difficult for you to actually access that right in a way that's meaningful and actually matters to the process. That so, on its face, we say, see, yeah, we did give you the opportunity to appeal, but like you just pointed out, it's it's after the primary process, and at that point, it no longer matters. Um, but this, this, you know, protecting, this protecting incumbents, and it really is put upon people, like, what is the point? What is your point? Is your point electing good people who have good policy, good power, platforms to represent people? Or is your point as, you know, the DCCC, the whatever organization it is, your local committee, state committees, is it just to uh, keep your people in positions of power? And we're, we're seeing time and again that it seems to be the latter. No matter what they may say otherwise, those annoying emails many of us get just because we're trying to stay on top of the information. Um, from from all your conversations and 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 in different you know interviews and research and stuff, you know what what thoughts do you have in terms of progressives? You know we there is a steep learning curve and there is a lot that strategically that we have to you know get together and it's particularly with as folks are learning how to run campaigns and as people are learning how to run for office. Things that are, are for some folks are, are new concepts. 
Um, you know, a, a lot of it, I think a lot of the success I've found is progressives running in, um, you know, not so much challenging Democratic incumbents, but the success I've seen a lot of is Democrats running in uh, districts or places where uh, Democrats haven't competed uh, and there's, you know, a, a need. Um, you know, we, we saw that in Virginia with Lee Carter um, and a lot of the DSA um, members and back candidates winning uh, in their places around the country. They're not, you know, notoriously progressive places, but they, they've won seats, um, and, you know, demonstrating that progressives can win um, when they, you know, focus on, you know, the progressive issues and they, they really don't have, um, you know, that not to say that the Democratic Party stronghold shouldn't be um, challenged what's, you know, at all. But um, in terms of that, I think it's really you just got to keep fighting. Um, they're going to throw different obstacles uh, in the way. They're going to, you, you know, use rules in their positions of power to try to prevent progressives and stop progressives from uh, winning these seats. But um, there, there comes a point and there's a lot of you know, opportunities and places where there's nothing they can do. Um, to stop it, uh, whether it's, you know, because voters, you know, have the decision in, in those, you know, um, issues or, you know, you know, progressives being unified, um, you know, to back and help good people um, that are doing good work. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, a, a big part of it. Uh, and another part is there are a lot of people, there's, there's, you know, not all progressive candidates are, are the same. They're, they're not, there are good ones and bad ones, not necessarily maybe on policies, but on, uh, you know, some people have been uh, involved politically and, you know, know the ins and outs of the game. Uh, and others uh, are really, you know, for lack of a better word, amateurs and are just learning this, uh, you know, and, you know, those are still important, though, because they're not necessarily running to win, but they're running for the experience and the connections. And, um, you know, I think progressives, what I don't want to see is getting, you know, seeing some of those people that run for big races, um, and do so every election cycle, and it's kind of a waste of resources and time if, you know, the same person runs for every, you know, Senate or governor seat and you're not, you're getting like two to five percent of the vote. Uh, yeah, I, I think we need to start, you know, looking out for those. Because um, there are going to be those types of people for for whatever reason, uh, and then there's going to be people running for you know all the wrong reasons, even if they are uh, you know progressive or you know running on issues like Medicare for all. So uh, I, I think these people need to be vetted, and I, I, but they need to get the opportunities to you know gain the valuable experience and make the connections. Uh, within you know communities and local parties, uh, and local party officials, and you know other progressives need to help other progressives, um, you know, be able to do that. And you know, so you know, I think you know that's that's a big part of it. Is um, and we're going to see this after the 2018 midterms. You're going to have uh, from reporters to uh, centrists claiming, you know, they're going to bundle all the losses and all the, the races that came up short and try to manufacture a narrative that says that, oh, progressives aren't doing well, or, you know, the political revolution burning, it's full floundering. It's, you know, you're going to see, you know, things like that. Um, it, it's just, it's a battle. It's, it's just going to take a lot of pushback, a lot of fighting, um, and to, you know, move on from the 2016 primary and really focus on, you know, I'm sick of, you know, hearing about Hillary Clinton. I don't think she's politically relevant at all. And even if she does, you know, campaign in the 2018 midterms, it's going to get a lot more media coverage and a lot of attention that way than it's worth 
Uh, you know, she didn't campaign much during her presidential campaign. At most, she's going to make a few handful of appearances for some uh, centrist Democrats in districts that are, you know, competitive. If she does so at all, but it, you know, it's it's not worth. I think, um, you know, people need to move on from um, those discussions and that the like clickbaity um, articles and if you see them every week. Um, and they're meant to evoke a reaction and get a lot of traffic, but they don't, they're pointless. So I, I think people need to move on and really focus on, um, you know, finding candidates within your district, within your state that are doing really well, uh, and try to help elevate them. Uh, and I, I think a big part of it also is there isn't uh, a substantive progressive media to do these. I, I want to talk about one candidate who I love, but she's not getting any attention or support outside of her state. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you're familiar with Connie Johnson. Um, she was a state senator in Oklahoma for eight years. She was the only superdelegate to support Bernie Sanders in Oklahoma in the 2016 primaries. Uh, she is one of three black women running for governor in the whole country. Uh, you know, she's an amazing candidate. She is, um, you know, she made national headlines in 2012. She was on The Daily Show because uh, Oklahoma's Republicans in the state Senate, they introduced a bill, an anti-abortion bill to make life, uh, you know, Life is at conception. That's what they did the bill. And she did a counter bill trolling that, saying that um, that basically men can't masturbate, that semen is life or whatever. So it was hilarious. And she um, has really led the way in um, you know, fighting the mass incarceration there. Uh, she proposed medical marijuana and marijuana reform in 2007. She told me she, she was did it like every year and every year people called her uh, when she first started doing it and they were like, what are you smoking? And then eventually people were like, yeah, we really need to do this. And uh, it's medical marijuana will be on the ballot with her in the June uh, primary this year. But, um, you know, she's a great candidate. Um, but, you know, I didn't hear about her uh, up until a few weeks ago and, uh, you know, I guarantee you most progressives uh, don't know that she exists or that she's running. And, 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 there's, and there's a lot of candidates. I'm sure there's a lot of candidates like that, a lot of great candidates who have the experience, who are widely qualified, who've done a lot of great work. Uh, another thing, she was chair of the this committee last year or a couple of years ago to abolish the death penalty in Oklahoma. And that state has the highest um, death penalty execution rate in the whole country. So, you know, She's a progressive leader in a state that Bernie won by 11 percentage points in the primary. Um, and, and people like that need support. Um, in, those are the people that need support nationally, less so than whoever the Democratic Party consultants uh, decide should be, you know, the big money race that people should pour money uh, and you know time and resources into. That is. I'm just sitting here looking at you. As soon as you mentioned her, I realized I did. I met her last summer, and she she had great energy. Um, and I don't know how we miss. We never actually connected, I think. But um, but I'm so happy that you you mentioned her. I think that that is a really good point about there are some really great people out there, people who have been progressive stalwarts who have already been in the trenches, who've been doing the work, but they have not maybe. Um, captured this, you know, digital activism excitement that so many others maybe have benefited from. And definitely, she is someone definitely to follow up with and find out more about. Um, thank you for that because I had, I mean, it's not an intentional oversight on my part, but, but, but you're right. She, she is, and she has really great, uh, energy in person as well. Um, no, no, no. I just, I just pulled her up on Twitter because I was trying to look for her Twitter handle when we were talking. And, and I'm like, oh yeah, I, I remember her. I met her. Um, and she is someone that is exciting and engaging and very dynamic. And, 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 and you're absolutely right. If somebody like Connie Johnson could get some more of that boost in that, um, 
Um, it's really interesting how the out-of-state support stuff goes, right? Because it can very, be very interesting, particularly as progressives, in terms of trying to help people fund the work that they're doing, right? Because a lot of it's not that the average person might not appreciate or support what's happening, but the fact that, you know, sometimes voters who appreciate the support, they're just not, it's just not enough, you know, there's just not enough in the pockets to help fund the level of field or the level of work that needs to happen on a statewide level to bring about the change we're talking about needs to happen. And that's why it's been so amazing to watch people all over the country who are willing to support good candidates doing good work, even if it isn't where they are, because that the more and more we have people, you know, we build up the support for things nationally, we're really investing at the state and local level. And so uh, you guys definitely check out Connie Johnson, um, Social media is not as active as it is as many other folks or whatever. But if anybody's interested in following her, she's Connie, C-O-N-N-I-E-J-4-O-K. Um, and this is definitely someone that I'll look into following up with as well. So I appreciate you uh, for pointing that out. Always, always great to interact with you and share. And, and, and I appreciate your writing um, and your willingness to go out there and get the story and do the work that needs to be done. And also for the very common sense manner in which you go about the business of doing your work. It's very easy to be caught up in the polarizing, you know, uh, talking points and stuff. But I really do find that a lot of your writing, most of the writing, tends to be very, you know, factual. And even if there is a bit to it, it still is presenting, you know, an issue and solutions and voices in a, in a manner that's, that's, that's very logical and easy to follow and, and and I appreciate your insight on, on strategy progressives as well. Oh, well, you know, I, I appreciate yours as well. So, um, you know, I, I want to thank you for, for having me on. Um, you know, I, I want to do like more stuff like this. Um, you know, I, I know, it, you know, it's a struggle out there for anyone in independent media, uh, in, in progressive media. Um, you know, because the, the platforms are dwindling, the audiences are being algorithmed out by, uh, you know, social media. So, uh, you know, it, it's always great to have, uh, you know, conversations with, with people like you who know their shit and are, you know, you know, are connected with, you know, places and communities and people that are, you know, actually doing the work. Uh, and not having to rely on, you know, mainstream media to, you know, run the discourse. Yeah, definitely. Um, thank you again for, for taking the time and joining me. And I look forward to future collaborations and, and the, the, the next few articles that you discussed that you have come down the pipeline. All right. Thank you, Anoa. It was a pleasure. Thank you. All right.